0: You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What
1: we do in life, echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome to episode 27 of Win the Day. The quote for today's episode comes from Robert F. Kennedy and says, Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. It's a wonderful quote to set the tone for what we'll talk about in this episode with our special guest, George Chanos, and of course to remind us of the importance of being proactive in such an uncertain time. I first met George in 2019 when we were speaking at the same event in San Diego. I was incredibly impressed, not just with his knowledge of future trends, but with how passionate he was about finding opportunity in them. That night I had dinner with George and we had a very vibrant conversation about politics, foreign policy, and just about everything else. He is extremely eloquent, infectiously passionate, and has a lifetime of real world business experience, as well as perspectives from high levels of public office. George served as Attorney General of Nevada, where he oversaw the entire state's Justice Department. He has even argued, successfully might I add, in front of the United States Supreme Court. Since leaving office, he has established a career as an accomplished speaker, author and businessman, including as chairman of one of the fastest growing franchises in the country. His two biggest passions are first, learning about the future, and second, interpreting that future to help younger generations thrive in what will be an era of unprecedented transformation. In many ways, the future is scary as hell. George tells of the technological tsunami that will revolutionize the world in the next 30 years and that we're already knee-deep in it without even knowing. In his latest book, Millennial Samurai, George equips younger generations with the concepts, the blueprints, and the resources to thrive in this future. Given the uncertainty we're facing right now with COVID-19, I thought this was great timing to have him on the show. In this wide-ranging interview, we cover politics, quarantine, artificial intelligence, automation, how to pivot for sustained success, and a whole lot more. George also shares the one thing that he believes is the biggest risk for the entire world. And no, it's not climate change or rogue viruses like COVID-19. And I should make an admission here, I am absolutely fascinated by US politics and have been since I moved here seven years ago. Every single bit of it. I mean, the stakes are so high, the battles are so fierce, and it's like the ultimate game of chess. George has an incredible insight into politics from many sides to give us an idea of what's really going on behind the scenes and how the power shifts will play out. Technology will transform the future more than we ever thought possible, and George is here to help you use it to your advantage. And he's also got a special free gift for everyone who is listening to this podcast or watching the show on YouTube, so stay tuned for that. Without further ado, let's welcome George Chanos. All right, George. Well, super excited to have you on the show. I know it's been about a year or so since we uh, since we saw each other, but we've we've got a lot to, to talk about. You know, we can talk about COVID, we could talk about politics, we could talk about your amazing new book millennial Samurai, and, and so many other topics. So thank you very much for for being here.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. It's always great to see you and look forward to seeing you again when we're in LA. Absolutely.
1: And former Attorney General of Nevada, are there any biases that you want to get out of the way publicly before we, uh, before we get into the interview?
0: You know, um, I have a bias for the truth. Um, I, I really um, I have a reverence for the law and for the truth. And, and um, you know, I used to serve uh, as Nevada's Attorney General at the time. Um, I was a Republican. Um, but in 2016, I was so disgusted with the choice that uh, my party had given me, that I left the party, and uh, and I became nonpartisan, and um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't happy with either choice. I wasn't happy with Hillary Clinton, and I wasn't happy with Donald Trump. Um, I think that in a country of 335 million people, uh, we can do better. I think that we deserve better, and um, you know that that's my bias. Um, So I don't lean one way or the other. I'm pretty much of a centrist. Um, I consider myself a centrist, but the goalposts are moving rapidly. So who knows where you may find me? Some people who are, you know, more to the left of me would, you know, might think I'm conservative. I can tell you that many who are conservative would never in a million years call me conservative. So, you know, make your own judgment.
1: I love it. Well, one, of the, one of the reasons I was so excited to chat to you today and get you on the show was because I, I know that you do have that pursuit of truth and all your Facebook posts and everything that comes out. It's really refreshing at a time when people just go and read from the one source to confirm their own uh, bias, whether they consciously know it. Uh, or not. Do, do you feel that whoever is in power, whether it's the president of America or the prime minister of the UK or Australia, do you feel like it's a little bit of a poison to chalice in the social media world that we're in and having to deal with things like COVID? Is it a bit of a, a poison chalice just being in office of, at the moment? Uh,
0: meaning that it's uh, uh, difficult because they've got these incredible challenges that they're trying to deal with and yeah, all, no yeah. matter who's there is going to uh, stumble and and have difficulty.
1: Yeah. A bit of a lose, lose scenario. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I, I I do. Um, and I feel sorry for, uh, Donald Trump in that respect and, and other world leaders that are having to deal with this incredibly enormous challenge. Um, you know, it's a hundred year pandemic. We haven't seen anything like this in our lifetime. Um, and, uh, the impact, uh, both in terms of you know, health complications, loss of life, uh, economic disruption, uh, economic carnage. Um, it, it, it's just been incredible. And um, what's even more amazing is that I was telling someone on the phone today that, you know, we're all looking at COVID-19 and we're thinking that, you know, this is just the, you know, the greatest uh, uh, chaotic type of event that any of us have experienced, and, and what most people don't realize is that there's a lot more change on the horizon. And it, it's not pandemic change, but it's technological change. And it's going to cause a level of disruption that is equal to the pandemic that we're now facing or greater. So uh, there, these are some of the things that I'm researching and that I'm writing about is that I believe that, so, so first of all, to back up a little bit, my, my history is that for 30 years, for 30 years, I've been advising businesses, high net worth in, individuals, including you know some governors and billionaires about how to solve complex problems. And in doing that, I've had to try to look for red flags. I've had to try to look beyond the horizon of what's in front of me, to anticipate problems that are ahead and or that might, you know, rear themselves or, or show themselves. Um, and in researching the next 30 years, which is what I've been spending the last five years doing, um, in researching the next 30 years, I see what I believe is a is is nothing less than a technological tsunami on the horizon that will create radical change and radical disruption. Automation will displace millions and millions of jobs. And unlike COVID-19, which is a temporary displacement, you know, COVID-19 is here today and gone tomorrow. It's going to be gone in 18 months. There's going to be a vaccine. And we're going to get past that. But automation is here to stay. And automation um, will, will redefine uh, life as we know it. Um, and artificial intelligence will redefine life as we know it. And, and those changes are, are going to be even more dramatic than the changes that we're going through now. And they're coming in the next five, 10, 15, and 20 and 30 years.
1: So and what it- about in, what about in the, uh, different times like the industrial revolution where people have always said, when it comes to technology, humans will Uh, you know, become redundant as far as the contributions that we can make to business and the economy and everything else. Everything's going to start to be automated. Why is this different based on all the research and things that you've done than some of those different uh, times like the Industrial Revolution that was supposed to lead to, you know, millions and millions or billions and billions of humans being out of work?
0: Yeah, so so there are a number of differences. Um, One of the first differences is that the Industrial Revolution from an agrarian society, we moved from an agrarian society to an industrial society, and and so there was still very much a place for humans, right? Um, it was just instead of uh, uh, you know holding a plow, uh, you might be holding a telescope or a microscope, or you know uh, uh, working in a in a steel mill or or doing something else that required your human involvement. Today, the technological revolution, there are, there are two main differences. Number one, we're not talking about humans reskilling for a new type of engagement. We're talking about automation. We're talking about machines replacing humans in the workforce, right? So uh, let me give you an example. Um the uh, Adidas has, has recently built something called the speed factory. Okay. And in the past, Adidas would manufacture their tennis shoes. They would take the raw materials, the fabrics and the rubber and uh, the molds and those things. And all these things would be either shipped off to, uh, to Asia, right? Some of the molds may have been made there, but the fact, the fabrics may have been made in Europe and shipped to Asia and the assembly The actual manufacturing of the shoe would occur in Asia because of low cost labor. And then the finished product would be shipped back to Europe for sale in Europe and Asia and North America. That was the model. Today, the Speed Factory that Adidas is operating, uh, their tennis shoes are made by robots. They no longer have to ship the raw materials to Southeast Asia and then have everything shipped back to Europe Everything is done in Europe, where you know the raw materials come from there, the molds are made there, the shoes are manufactured and assembled there, and they've eliminated millions of jobs of, of people, low-cost labor in Southeast Asia. That trend is going to continue. So anything that can be automated eventually will be automated. And McKinsey and Company, which is a global consulting firm, says that today, 47%, McKinsey estimates 47% of U.S. jobs are currently susceptible to automation based on existing technology. So we're not even talking about future technology. We're talking about the technology is there today to take away half of our jobs. Now... There will always be this economic incentive to do that because, especially now, look at this pandemic, right? So in a pandemic, you have people that are calling in sick. Uh, You may have furloughed them or laid them off. They may be going and now getting other jobs. They may be on unemployment. You have sick leave, you have hospitalization, you have insurance bills, you have all these issues you can't work these workers 24 hours a day, right? Um, And you have to cater to their human needs, right? Well, let's take Amazon, for example. Amazon does, uh, hires a bunch of human beings to sort packages, right? And, um, And they pay them based on how many packages they can sort in a given time with a certain level of accuracy, right? So they want them to be 99.9% accurate or 100% accurate. And they want them to move quickly, right? Without making any mistakes. This is the ideal employee, right? And they hire humans to do this, right? Well, three weeks ago, a company called Convariant came out with a robot, which for the first time, this never existed before because robotics is evolving, right? And uh, sometimes the robots don't have the dexterity to sort packages, sometimes they don't have the the recognition capability to differentiate between the reflective properties of a packaging, or to be able to spot, you know, uh, the type styles and the different uh, barcodes and the different uh, designs and and configurations of all these different types of packages made all over the world with, you know, all over, all different standards, right? So you have to create an artificial intelligence and a robotic that has the ability to do that, uh, which is a very complicated task. And up until last month, they couldn't do it. Well, now Convariant has a robot that can sort 10,000 separate SKUs, packages, 10,000. They can do it at a speed that would put any Amazon employee that operated at that speed into the bonus category of payment. So they'd be paid more. You'd have to pay them more to do it at this speed. And they do it with 99.9% accuracy, this machine Convariant has.
1: What's the previous level of accuracy for humans?
0: They couldn't, they couldn't even do it. They, yeah. they couldn't even do it really because they didn't have, so so the machine has to actually have the, the dexterity to be able to grab these packages, right? And then it has to read them, and then it has to sort them and move them around. And, and it has to do all of that very, very quickly. And there was never a robot that could do it up until last month, right? So these are the types of, of, of evolution in technology that, that we should be expecting. This is coming, this is here. You know, to a large degree, this is here. Okay. Number one job for an American male today is truck driver. Chrysler Dahmer was testing driverless trucks on Nevada's highways in 2017. Mercedes has a truck right now that does cross country trips and the driver, you know, is, is non-essential, right? Now today these drivers, they still have a driver in the vehicle, but the machine is doing all the driving. The, the, the driver's doing nothing. But in a few years, right? They're not going to need to put that driver in the vehicle. It's just going to, they're just going to have somebody sitting at a, at, a, at a computer laptop, and that person is going to send off a fleet of, of you know, uh, these trucks that are going to go cross-country in a caravan, and they're, and they're not going to need any humans to drive them, right? Um, there are so many jobs that fit into this category. Journalists, right? Journalists are going to become uh, non-essential. Um, the uh, Amazon, which owns the Washington Post, has an algorithm already where an editor can type in a request, a one-sentence request: "Give me, give me a 750-word article on why Donald Trump will lose in 2020." That machine will generate a 750 word article on that subject. Now, let's say it was a more, even more controversial subject. Give me a 750 word article on why Hillary Clinton is a traitor. Now, if I were an editor and you were a liberal journalist and I were to go to you and I were to say, give me a 750 word article on why Hillary Clinton is a traitor, you might say, I'm not writing that article. I wouldn't write such an article because I don't believe she is a traitor. Okay? Many people would say that, right? And you know, I certainly don't believe that, but uh, many people would say that. I-, I don't believe she is a traitor, <laughs> a decent you know, human being, but uh, she's just not somebody I would want as president. But uh, But anyway, the point is that an editor would have to deal with the moral qualms of the journalist and they would have a discussion. Over whether or not this is even an article that should be written, right? But let's say the let's say the editor doesn't want to have that discussion. Let's say the the editor has a point of view that they want to push out on the American public or on the world. Now they have a computer that will create that article for them. Amazon ran five hundred of these articles during the two thousand and sixteen election that were all generated by computer. No. Human being authored these articles and and yet they received 500,000 likes and no one knew, no one knew that they were written by a machine. Now Amazon is licensing that technology to various newspapers around the world. Well, if you think about the implications of some of these things, you know, one implication is that it puts a lot of journalists out of work. Another implication, is that it gives immense power to somebody who decides that they want to purchase that algorithm and use that technology to create information that they want to distribute widely um, through social media. We have the democratization of media. We have advances in technology that now allow for the creation of material that can go onto that democratized media. We have videos where There's new video technology. There's a video out of uh, Barack Obama giving a speech that he never made, right? So they take hundreds of thousands, millions of images of his voice and of his facial movements and they can reconstruct a video. It's just like you watching me right now and believing that it's me talking to you. I've seen them,
1: they're scary, aren't they, Yeah.
0: yeah. And they now have the ability to have Donald Trump sit in front of a screen uh, and you're watching him and you're thinking it's him and he might be saying things that could start a war. And it's not him. It's, it's a video that has been created by artificial intelligence. So when you think about the implications of all of these things, um, the World Economic Forum was forecasting significant economic disruption from automation over the next five years. And they were forecasting this before the pandemic. So they were saying, we're gonna have significant economic disruption without the pandemic. And now we've got the pandemic layered on top of it. And then we're gonna emerge from the pandemic and we're gonna get hit by another wave of automation. And the problem is, is that people aren't ready. So another difference between this and the industrial revolution is how people aren't ready and how we're not ready to train them. So if you, if you look at the education system, the education system that we have in the United States was born out of the industrial revolution. We were going to take our people from the farms and we were going to ask them to work in factories. So we had to educate them. So we created the public education system. Well, now we have a quantum leap where we're moving from the industrial age to the technological revolution. And we need a new education system for the technological revolution because it's nothing like the industrial revolution. And yet we have, we have this antiquated education system. That, so, so you have jobs, you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States that cannot be filled because we don't have people who understand the technology and the needs of those jobs. Right. So we need a whole retooling of our entire education
1: system. So many questions, George, There's there's about a million different in my head, I feel like I need one of these Amazon algorithms to help unpackage all these questions to to ask you. In Australia, when the whole Uber thing happened and, you know, Uber came over to Australia, I remember sitting in a cab from uh, the airport, you know, all my family and things are back in Australia and the cab driver, you know, I think it's about two hundred dollars or $250,000 that you pay for a cab driver license, uh, which, you know, then you can have drivers to go and drive your, your cab and do all those different things. And I believe the government uh, contributed to people who had bought a taxi license, you know, a cab, a taxi license. Uh, so the government was saying basically because this innovation came in from Uber, I'm sure there's issues around foreign ownership and different things with that too, But at what point does the government have to pay for an industry that has not evolved and innovated as quickly as it should have? Because on the one side, you think, well, Uber is a fantastic product when it launched. People were sick of taxis. They didn't like, you know, they were never looked after, they, you know, they stunk. Uh, you were worried that the taxi driver would take you in the wrong the wrong place. You'd even have to pull out your credit card to pay or pay cash. Whereas something like Uber comes along, you get a bottle of water. You know it's the most direct route. You don't need to touch your wallet, and you can even have your playlist on when you're when you're in there. So, what is the government obligation as some of this technological innovation uh, comes through?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. You know, so um, it's it's. Uh I have to unpack that question <laughs> uh, because, because it, has a lot of, it has a lot of different elements to it. So first of all, um, we as consumers, we want the best solution, right? If the best solution is Uber, that's what we want, right? We don't want to be, you know, forced to be riding around in horses and buggies because the government doesn't want to let Uber in because they're trying to, you know, safeguard the horse and buggy industry. Well, same thing with taxis, right? On the other hand, if the government is charging you $250,000 to have this license, at the time that you probably paid that, there was probably an expectation on both sides that this license would have a lifespan of X and that you would amortize those costs, those 250,000 costs over the life of the value of this license. Well, if you're going to cut short the value of that license by allowing uh, a competitor industry to come in, you know, you don't block the door to the competitor industry, but maybe you owe a bit of a refund to the guy who paid you a $250,000 fee for a license that you've now essentially made valueless. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and although the choice of making it valueless is eminently understandable, um, and if the government had done nothing to tax this industry and had just, you know, the industry was doing what it was doing and it got replaced by Uber, then the government's not involved. They never were involved. They don't need to be involved. But in this case that you've described, if I were representing the taxi company, I'd be saying, you know, my guys are entitled to a bit of a refund here, right? Um, so that's one issue, Um the, uh, the other issue is, you know, what does government do? What is government involvement in these types of things, like universal basic income, okay? So now, uh, in the halls of Congress, uh, they are discussing universal basic income uh, uh, more seriously than ever. And, and the reason that they're discussing it is that they know, they know that there is a tsunami of technological change on the horizon. And they know that it is going to eliminate millions of jobs. And so they know that there are going to be these people that are going to be jobless. And what are they going to do? Are they going to allow them to starve? Um, are they, do they think that they will starve peacefully, right, in silence? Or do they think that they will cause uh, social disruption, right, that might make it dangerous for everyone, right? So government has to manage all of this. And this is nothing new. You go back into ancient Rome. And in ancient Rome, they built the Colosseums and they had these gladiatorial fights. And why was that? Why did they do that? They did that specifically as this was the gift of the emperor to the society. The the emperor was gifting this to the society. Here are the games, I've given you the games, right? Why? Well, because you're starving and you're living in dysentery and your and your life sucks and and so, but I'm your leader and I expect you to pay taxes and uh, you know and he's so a distraction. <laughs> I, I've got to I've got to entertain you. I've got to you know I've got to distract you, right? So government is always in the business of not only providing for its population but managing the expectations. And the lives, to a certain degree, of its population. Now, there's a big, you know, philosophical debate over this about how much government should be involved and how much we should be on our own, and you know. And I basically believe that 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 less government is better if you can do it right. If uh, uh, the, in the in the best of all cases is we don't need government and people can manage nicely without them, and nobody is starving, and we're all doing well, and we're all thriving, but that's not that's not always the case. So sometimes you need government in certain areas, so then you have to make choices, because sometimes when you involve government, it takes away certain freedoms, right? So for example, the pandemic is, a, is another beautiful example. in In the United States, we have all these freedoms and all these civil liberties, right? We get to protest, we get to, gather together freedom of assembly yeah yeah, we get to say what we want (laughs) to say right so if we want to have a march on washington of a million people hey that's our right that's our birthright we've been doing that since the union was formed right but if you do that in the middle of a pandemic you create health risks for other people right um you know and there are limits There are limits to our freedoms, right? So for freedom of speech, for example, in the United States, we have freedom of speech, but there are limits. I cannot go into a movie theater and yell fire when there is no fire. Because if I do, everyone will rush towards the door. There will be a stampede. People will run over people. People will be injured. Some might die. And this has happened, you know, in theaters in our history. And so they made a law that says you cannot yell fire in a, in a crowded theater if there is none, right? So that's a limitation on your freedom of speech. You cannot threaten the life of the president in the United States. Even though you can say a lot of things, you cannot make a threat against the life of the president. That's another limitation on your freedom. Well, during a pandemic, you know, can you go out and protest? Um, and and violate this you know social distancing regime? And can you disregard the laws of, of uh, the state that you live in and open your business if you want to open it when the state tells you you must close? This is this tension that we will have between civil liberties and individual rights that this country is, is uh, known for and, and is one of our greatest strengths. Um, in a pandemic, it's not always a strength it can be a weakness so it's very interesting when you think about this how you know something that you know innovation and freedom of thought and freedom of action these are these are the hallmarks of the american economy these are these are the great american dream the the, the tools that allow you to pursue the great american dream and so we look at them as 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 clear and obvious strengths right and so we don't understand why in certain situations they can actually create a weakness right so china for example china was able to lock down the city of wuhan and surrounding provinces and 60 million people with a quarantine right try doing that in the united states <laughs> you know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do it I mean, Governor Cuomo tried to create, brought in the National Guard to try to create a quarantine in, in, in the little part of New York, like a one mile radius where they saw a cluster forming. And, uh, you know, it was hell for him to deal with that.
1: You um, know, yeah, when this whole COVID-19 thing happened, I have never seen something that moves so fast. Even I remember what happened with the, the global financial crisis with Subprime in 2007 to 2009 you know, a lot of that was around the the big investment banks and things would have been too aggressive and, and packaged off these different, you know, products and things that they had and were being too greedy. This one, I have never seen something move so fast with so much conflict around the data that had, that had come through. Do you think when all that happened and you see footage of warehouses and hotels around the world being set up with hospital beds and uh, conversations around ventilators when your average citizen doesn't really know much at all about about ventilators I certainly didn't prior to all this happening do you think that why, and and then you see places like San Francisco being very strict with how they handle it and other places uh, I believe it was somewhere in Florida where they're like you can you know you're still doing spring break do you feel that the response in the US has been fair and you know another thing we could bring in here is how hospitals are incentivized to put people on ventilators and to mark things up as COVID, even if they are uh, exhibiting some symptoms, but haven't officially been diagnosed as having COVID-19. What's your, what's your take on, on the whole response of, of, of what we're in?
0: So we've made a lot of mistakes and we've done some good things. And, and you need to look at each action and you need to critique each action and, and determine whether or not it was wise. And, and so, you know, many are saying that the cure of shutting down the economy is worse than the disease because it's ravaged our economy. We've got 20 plus million people that are on unemployment. Um, it's putting a lot of people out of business permanently. It's causing a lot of emotional trauma. We've probably got increased suicides. We've got increased divorces. We've domestic got- Domestic violence, you know, yeah. Increased domestic violence. So there are dangers in in this type of uh, full court press response, where you're trying to flatten the curve. The reason for the sense of urgency and the reason for the speed at which these decisions were made is that it had to be made in that time frame, because the COVID nineteen pandemic expands at an exponential rate. So. One becomes three. One person uh, infects, say, three people. There was a recent thing in in South Korea that a man was jumping from different bars, bar to bar to bar, and he was believed to have been in contact with as many as 1,500 people. And he had COVID-19. And so instead of three, one person infects three, you have outliers where one person goes to a packed stadium at a football game, or a nightclub, um, and or a concert, um, and they infect many more people. So, number one, the exponential rate of increase is something that causes the virus to spike very quickly. So, you if you played out on a chessboard. And you took all the squares on a chessboard and each time you went from 1 to 3, um, from 3 to 9, right, from uh, 9 to 18, if you kept ev- even doubling, you know, 2 to 4, 4 to 8, 8 to 16, even doubling, by the time you get to the end of the chessboard, you have over a trillion, a number that's over a trillion, okay? That's the the power of, of, of doubling and, and an exponential increase. With COVID-19, they believe the number is more than one goes to two. They believe that it's it could be one to three, some estimates are higher. Um, with that kind of an increase, it doesn't take long at all. Within a matter of weeks, uh, the numbers just start to compound and they get out of control. So. You know, and when you get into the bigger numbers, then a doubling, a doubling of 20 million is 40 million that can happen in like a three to five day period going from 20 million to 40 million. Right. So so you don't have time to react. You don't have time to delay. You have to act. You have to flatten the curve.
1: Right? The risk of getting it wrong is so severe, it's just not worth oh, yeah. it. An yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. It's so severe that you just can't take the chance. So, so there's that issue. Then there's the issue of, you know, people saying, well, you're just flattening the curve. You're not really eliminating the disease because once we open up, all these things can happen again and we're right back to where we were. So what good did it do, right? Maybe we should just have herd immunity. Maybe we should just let everybody get sick and we should have herd immunity. Okay. So, you know, these are all discussions that scientists are having, and, um, and there are a number of things to consider among these things. First of all, if you don't control the curve, if you don't control the curve, you will have a spike that will go up so rapidly that no healthcare system in the world could, could handle it, okay? So your hospitals would be completely overrun. This was beginning to happen. This happened in Italy. This was beginning to happen in New York. But because they took such quick action to flatten the curve, they built up all these beds because they were expecting that they were going to need it all. And had they not flattened the curve and had people not stayed home and had they not social distance, and had they not practiced good hygiene, all those beds would have been filled and many more and many more would have died. So this was necessary. It's necessary to to to. practice social distancing, practice good hygiene, shelter at home when possible, to maintain a lower curve and to avoid a spike, because the spike will be the most destabilizing thing that could occur to us, okay? Not only will it make our hospitals completely overrun, but it will contaminate most of our doctors and medical workers and first responders and police, and all of a sudden they'll be out. And then you'll have more deaths, and then people who need to get into those hospitals for a heart transplant or a heart attack or you know, uh, be on kidney dialysis or whatever their ailment is, those people won't be able to get in. In, in places like San Francisco, they've got a significant homeless pop- population. They've got 60,000 homeless in your city, in, in LA. These people are living in unsanitary conditions they're living in close proximity to one another. Uh, they are shedding the disease through fecal matter uh, you know by uh, defecating in, in the streets and on the sidewalks and you know I was at a hotel I was staying at the Clift in, in San Francisco which is a very nice hotel and I was walking uh, literally six blocks to a restaurant and I, I had to walk through neighborhoods that I was fearful. Of of being in those neighborhoods. There it's like a checkerboard. You don't know, you know, in San Francisco, you you you're in a great neighborhood one minute, and the next minute you're in, in, in a horrible neighborhood. And some of those horrible neighborhoods are filled with homeless people who are shedding. And some of the people that are walking to the restaurants are walking through those neighborhoods or walking to their office or walking through those neighborhoods, and they're getting that stuff on their feet. And then they're tracking it into their hotel. Or they're tracking it into their office, um, and then it's spreading, and and these contaminations are spreading, and so it's a very dangerous situation, and and people are dying from it. Um, you know, it depends on now also, you know, how how vulnerable you are is is what kind of a category are you in? You know, you're a very healthy younger guy. You know, you're probably in in a relatively low risk category. Okay, I'm sixty two years old. I'm in a high risk category. I, I have had a heart attack. In 2012, I had a heart attack. Um, I am not diabetic, but I have high sugar levels. Um, I have uh, high blood pressure. I'm on high blood pressure medication. I, am, I, I have a bit of an asthma condition. My lungs, uh, I've had pneumonia when I was in my 30s. You know, I, uh, I'm in a high risk category. So, you know, people like me, it doesn't matter what the government tells me, I'm not going out to restaurants, I'm not going to concerts, I'm not going to conventions, I'm not, I'm sheltering at home, you know? And most of the people that I know who are my age feel that way. You don't have to tell them, you know, they can't go out. They're just not going. So, so that's going to impact restaurants. It's already devastating the restaurant industry. And, and I'm in the restaurant business. I'm the chairman of the board of a company called Capriati's. We have over a hundred stores in 20 states that we've had to close and the economic consequences of closing that have been horrendous. And, and I'm, I would love to have my stores open. You know, I would love to reopen for business. Right. Um, But even now, even now that uh, that the government has said that we could reopen our restaurants, our corporate restaurants here in Las Vegas We've made the decision to continue to keep them closed right now. Now, we will eventually open them and we hope to open them, but we're watching this very closely. Now, how do you deal with this as a business person? This is a big issue, right? A lot of people are failing. A lot of people are not able to deal with it. A lot of businesses will close permanently. Fine dining is a business who has seen better days, right? And the days ahead, are not necessarily going to be that good for them, okay? Because as long as we're dealing, as long as we're living in a world where these issues come to pass, people are going to be more careful about going out to restaurants and sitting near other people. And fine dining has taken a huge hit. They're down like 90%. And and many of them are going to go out of business. Certain events like Cirque du Soleil, uh, closed. Incredible company, magnificent company performances all over the world. The NBA had to shut down, right? So, I mean, all of these companies that are in businesses that rely on large quantities of people to be in close proximity are are, are required to pivot and adapt to these changing circumstances. So at Capriati is what we've done is we've migrated online and we've done it very effectively and very quickly and, and, and so we're not down 90% like that, uh, like uh, fine dining or 60 to 70% like uh, uh, family dining or 30 to 40% like uh, quick service restaurants like our competitors. We are down, but we're only down 14%. We're down 14% because we immediately moved our operations. Everyone in corporate, over 100 employees went virtual. Nobody showed up at the office, they're all working from home. That was immediate. We've cut our salaries by 25% across the board. We have um, uh, increased our advertising dollars on online media and on online delivery. And we've shifted our focus to online delivery. We're opening up ghost kitchens. Ghost kitchens are a new phenomenon in the uh, franchise and quick service restaurant space where you take an industrial building and someone goes into that industrial building and they build out, let's say 50 kitchens. And these are full service kitchens, but they have no seating for customers. There are no customers enter this industrial space.
1: So less space to pay for. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we rent the space. We rent a kitchen in, in a ghost kitchen and we go in and we create our food and then we go online and we promote our food. And then we have Uber and Grubhub and DoorDash come and drive and come to the industrial warehouse and they pick up the food and they deliver it to our customers. And this reduces our overhead, right? We don't have to pay for inline retail. We don't have to pay for A or B commercial real estate. We're, we're at a much smaller uh, footprint in terms of the space that we require We have much fewer employees that are required and we pay much lower rent. So as a consequence, we can be profitable. We we can have a business that works in a pandemic, that makes money, where we take our existing business model and we pivot into a new mode of delivery and service for our customers, right? Where we can guarantee safety and quality. We have everybody wearing masks, Wearing gloves, we sanitize. We do everything that you can, state of the art, to protect our customers. We have deliveries with masks and gloves, and you know uh, we pivot. So this is what people are going to have to do. People are going to have to pivot and adapt to a changing environment. The, the rules of the game have changed, and there's no sense moaning about it or crying over spilled milk or saying, woe is me, or thinking about how difficult it's going to be, you just need to do it. Now, that sounds easier said than done, and it is. It's much easier to think about how difficult it is. right? We could spend all day, you and I, thinking about how difficult it is. Or we could spend all day thinking about what opportunities has this pandemic created for me and my business and my family. And that's what I'm advising people to do. I'm advising people to to find opportunity in adversity. Retain your your hopefulness and your sense of aspiration. The game's not over. The rules have changed. The landscape and the playing field has changed. The competitors have changed, but the game's not over.
1: I really love that,
0: yeah. Get into the game, get back into the game, okay? And pivot and adapt and thrive.
1: You get people in situations like this where they feel that panic and they just, they spend all their time watching the news and, and that leads to inaction, which is a big thing that I've been talking about on this show for the last few episodes. But having having an awareness that there is opportunity in every single adversity. So I'm thank you for sharing that story about some of the practical things that you're doing on that side, because a lot of people, who had listened to what we were talking about? You know, for the first part of this interview, might have been very pessimistic about the future. So, what I wanted to ask you, like, I know that you're an optimist and you've got all these amazing things in Millennial Samurai too. How optimistic or pessimistic should people be about the future? And we've got all these different things that are that are happening. We've got pandemics. We've got, uh, you know, everything happening on automation.
0: Well, let me tell you this. I'm excited. Okay. Not everybody is, um, but leaders, leaders don't run from challenges. Leaders run at them. Okay, so I look at this. You can look at it as a glass half empty, or you can look at it as a glass half full, and it's mindset. And here's here's you know we you all know the downside. Let's talk a little bit about the upside. You are living in the most extraordinary period in human history. How lucky for you. You are living in the most extraordinary period in human history. You will see more dramatic change. You will see things that you can't even fathom, that you can't even comprehend. You know, Stephen Hawking, theoretical physicist, Stephen Hawking in 2014, before he died, He said that the singularity, the moment in time when machine intelligence eclipses human intelligence would be the greatest event in human history, greater than fire, greater than the wheel, greater than space travel, greater than the internet, greater than anything that man has ever experienced. Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of artificial intelligence for Google, the guy that Bill Gates, says, knows more about artificial intelligence than anyone he knows, Ray Kurzweil tells us that the singularity may come as early as 2029. That's 10 years away. You and I will be alive to witness the greatest event in human history. That's something to celebrate, okay? Now Kurzweil goes on to say that By the 2040s, which is 20 to 30 years away, we're 2020 today, 20 years from now will be 2040, 30 years from now will be 2049, okay? And and Kurzweil says that by the 2040s, 20 to 30 years away, artificial intelligence will no longer be our equal. It will be a billion times a billion times more capable than human intelligence. Now, you and I, our mind, our human intelligence, lacks the ability to even comprehend what that means. We can't even comprehend what something, what a world that is a billion times our intelligence will look like. But Kurzweil says that by that time, 20 to 30 years from now, Our neural cortex will be connected to the cloud that we won't have to go on our phone. So when I was a kid, I had to go to the library (laughs) to find the answer to a question. Today, I go to my phone. My phone has 100,000 times the computing power that NASA had in 1969 when they put men on the moon. In order to put men on the moon, they needed a room filled with computers. Now imagine me going back 50 years to 1969 with this phone and saying to these scientists, these cutting edge scientists at NASA, saying, hey guys, 50 years from now, everybody's gonna have one of these in their back pocket and it has 100,000 times the computing power of everything you got in this room. And everybody's got one. I'm here from the future, right? they would have said you're out of your mind you're you know put this guy in a sanitarium right because nobody's talking about right futurists say that when someone talks about the future if it doesn't sound like science fiction they don't know what they're talking about okay so now take yourself 20 30 40 or 50 years from now and technology is increasing at an exponential rate we talked about an ex- exponential progression with the pandemic well, technology is also increasing at this exponential rate. So the, the um, you know, uh, Moore's Law, uh, a guy named, uh, I forget his first name, Roger Moore maybe, or no, it wasn't Roger Moore. Something else, he was, he was one of the guys at Intel, Gordon Moore. Gordon Moore came up with Moore's Law. And Moore's Law, 50 years ago, Gordon Moore predicted that computers would double in power and have cut in half in price every 18 to 24 months. For the past 50 years, Moore's law has proven true. Kurzweil is now looking at Moore's law and saying that he doesn't think it just applies to computers. He thinks it applies to human evolution. And he thinks that that man is going to evolve into a machine. And that this is part of our evolutionary path. And that the speed at which that is going to happen is going to happen more quickly than the last 50 years. What what we've seen happen over the last 50 years may happen over the next 20 years or less, right? So it will increase in speed. And then it will increase again. And it will continue to increase. So, you know, we don't know where all of this is going but we do know this. We know that it's going to be extraordinary. We know that it's going to be extraordinary and you can either be frightened by it or you can be excited by it. I choose, I choose to be excited by it. Now, part of the reason that I'm excited about it is because I'm learning. I've developed a love of learning. And so I read constantly I do everything I can to better myself and my mind and to become smarter. And so I feel that I'm going to be equipped to deal with this future better than most. Okay. And you have that option as well. Everyone watching this has that option. It's not, I'm not, you know, some uh, extraordinary genius that just, you know, my brain's bigger than yours. It doesn't work that way. Science has told us that we have the ability to control our IQ, okay? We didn't used to know that. We used to, neuroscientists used to believe that you had a fixed IQ, that you were born with a certain number of ba- brain cells and you died, give or take, with that bra- number of brain cells. And if they tested your IQ at 12 and they tested it at 60, it would be the same. It would be very much the same. They now know that that's not true. You have the power. You have the ability to both control your thoughts. Harvard Harvard neuroanatomist Jill Bolte Taylor does a great TED talk on this, on called "The Anatomy of the Teenage Brain." You have the ability to control your thoughts, and you have the ability to increase your IQ. Okay, but you, but it requires work. You have to go out and educate yourself. You can't just sit around and not read and not watch the news and not learn anything and think that you're going to be fine because you're not, you know? And that's just a cold, hard reality. Like a muscle that atrophies if you don't use it. Exactly. Your brain is a muscle. Your brain is a muscle. And if you don't use it, you'll lose it. It will, have, it will atrophy, like any other muscle. So you need to exercise it. The secret to surviving and thriving throughout the 21st century is number one, have an awareness. You know, uh, Sheryl Sandberg of, of Facebook said that we cannot change that which we are unaware of. But once we are aware, we cannot help but change, okay? So number one, you need awareness, right? You need to, aware, you need to be aware of a technological tsunami so that you can move to higher ground right? So that you're not wiped out by it, right? So I'm trying to create awareness. I'm trying to let you know what's coming so that you can be prepared. That awareness is important. It's critical. Okay. You need to have an open mind. You need to open up your mind. Why? Because a closed mind can't learn. Okay. A mind, Frank Zappa once said, a mind is like a parachute. It doesn't work if it isn't open, okay? So you need to be open and receptive to new information. You need to understand how the human brain works, right? How your brain works, how other people's brains work, so that you understand why different people have different ideas and different perspectives and different positions, why one guy wants to open up the economy and why the other guy wants to close it down. Why? Why do they think differently? Why do they see the world differently? And what can you learn from that? right? Well, you may see it a certain way and you may be convinced that the way you see it is the right way because that's what your brain is telling you. Well, that's what his brain is telling him and that's what he sees. Now, you were both given the same hardware. Essentially, you were both given a brain just like I was given a brain. Mine's not very different than yours, okay? But the software that we all have is different because the input that we all have is different. I read voraciously I devour information, right? If you devour information, you will improve your software, okay? So you need to study and you need to read. Now, what do you read and how do you study, right? What what are you looking for? You're looking for breakthrough knowledge. You're looking for knowledge that can transform your life, okay? So how do you find that in a sea of information, in in information overload? right so we have massive amounts of information and you're looking for breakthrough knowledge you're looking for these nuggets that are going to change your life how do you find them right in a sea of information and disinformation well okay so you have to be smart about how you read and what you read okay you're not reading for confirmation of what you already know okay you're you're looking for disconfirming evidence. You're looking for things that tell you that what you think is true is actually not true. Okay. Science progresses through disconfirming information. I do tests over and over again, over and over again. And it works until all of a sudden it doesn't. Well, why didn't it work? What was wrong? What was, what, what ingredients was I missing? What did I miss here? What is this other information that, that is important for me to know the difference between why the experiment succeeded or why it failed? It's that piece of information that I'm looking for, right, so that I can fix that issue and it will always work and it will never fail, right? So I've, I've written a book and it's called Millennial Samurai. And, and what I've done is I've, I've created what I think is a resource, a very valuable, important resource for people. And I think that it will change people's lives. If I, were, if I were to die tomorrow, the thing that I'm most proud of is not having served as attorney general, not having argued before the United States Supreme Court to a unanimous successful verdict, but having created this toolkit that I'm leaving to my family, to my daughter, to my nieces and nephews, and that I'm a making that I'm making available for free online. You can download a free digital copy of this 444-page book for free. Okay, you go to MillennialSamurai.com and you can download it for free. Now, why do you want to do that, and why do you want to read it? Because this book is me spending the last five years reading everything, finding what I think are the nuggets of information that you and my daughter and my nephews and nieces need to know and putting them all in one easy to read place. Okay. So it's divided. It's very easy to read. You will enjoy the hell out of it. You'll love reading it. It's very easy to read. It's broken down into small chapters. The chapters are only one to three pages each. Okay. So the chapters are only one to three pages each. Here's, here's a ch- uh, chapter called The Bystander Effect, okay? Why do people stand by when somebody is getting beaten up in the middle of the street or murdered in the middle of the street and, and everybody stands around and doesn't do anything? Well, there have been studies on this. Wouldn't you like to know why they stand around? Um, how to build consensus, Right, right? So we have a highly polarized society Wouldn't you like to know how to build consensus? Artificial intelligence, it's gonna change your life. One to three pages on each of these chapters will make you know more than 99% of the American public about that subject. You won't know more about artificial intelligence than Ray Kurzweil or Bill Gates or anybody like that after reading this, but you'll know more than all your neighbors. You'll know more than all the other people at work, okay? And that's enough. That's enough to give you a competitive edge. That's enough for you to have engaging conversations with your employer and with your prospective employer. That's enough to make you think about new business opportunities. To make you, there are chapters like finding opportunity in adversity, overcoming your fear, understanding your fear. I mean, all of these things. Tribalism, understanding tribalism, understanding cognitive dissonance, understanding motivated reasoning, why you reason yourself into a conclusion that is based on your prior understanding of facts and why you set up hurdles to new information that conflicts with your existing worldview and allow information that conforms to your existing worldview to come in, right? Why do you do that? Why does your brain do that outside of your conscious awareness, right? Right? We have 11 million bits of information that impact our brain every second of the day. Our conscious brain can only process 15 to 50 bits of information per second. So that means the vast majority of information that's coming into your brain is coming in outside of your conscious awareness, right? Now think about the Amazon algorithm at the Washington Post and how these articles can be used to manipulate you. How media today, how you watch one news station and it tells you the world is this way and you watch another world uh, station and it tells you, oh, no, 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 the world is this way, right? How do you know who's telling the truth? How do you figure that out? Well, there's a chapter on critical thinking that tells you how to approach these issues. So these are tools. These are tools. If I were to drop you off in the middle of the Amazon rainforest and I were going to give you a duffel bag We all know the types of things I would put in that duffel bag. Well, if I'm going to drop you off or my daughter off in the middle of the 21st century, this is the tool bag that I've created for my family. And I'm offering it to you for free. Why? Because I think it's the answer to society's problems. I think that if I can make you smarter and if you go on and follow my lead, so, what am I doing? I'm helping others. I'm helping you. Now, if you model me and you go off and help the next guy and you share this information with them and we all become smarter, we're all going to do much better, right? I'm going to do better. My daughter's going to do better. Everybody's going to do better because we'll all be behaving more rationally. We'll all be making better decisions. We'll all be more hopeful and aspirational. We'll all be better at solving problems. This, to me, is the answer, especially in the absence of a complete reform of our education system, which I think is also required. But I'm not holding my breath for that. I'm not waiting for that to happen. I don't think that that's going to happen, ever. So we're going to have to help each other. Humanity, this is the biggest thing that, that I can, there are two things that I would give, leave you that... That are the most important things. Number one, understand that humanity is profoundly interdependent. Okay, you are not an island unto yourself. The guy in the grocery store who's not wearing a mask affects you and your family. You're not alone. Okay, the guy who who coughs on you. You know, uh, the the guy who who marches. You know, and, and forms rallies in the middle of a pandemic. These people all affect your life. Okay? So we need to make them all smarter. We need to make them all smarter. And the public education system's not gonna do it. And the government's not gonna do it. And and private profit-driven business isn't gonna do it. Okay? So who's gonna do it? You've gotta do it. You've gotta do it. I've gotta do it. We've all gotta do it. So So number one, understand our profound interdependence. And number two, understand the critical, critical, critical importance of an open mind.
1: Do you feel that, sorry?
0: I was just going to say, just a visual. Pretend that you're jumping out of a plane and you're plummeting towards the ground because the speed at which you would fall is equivalent to the speed of the technological tsunami that's on the horizon. Now, you have a parachute. You got a parachute with you, but it doesn't work if it isn't open. Your parachute is your brain. That's what's going to save you. Your brain's going to save you. But it's got to be open, and you've got to fill it with good information, and you got to get rid of all the false information. And you only do that like you like you build a muscle going to the gym. You have to work on it. Okay?
1: It's a great reminder that we all have within us everything that we need to succeed, regardless of, of what sort of happened in our past too. Do you do you think there's a time when we see, given now that media outlets and things that's run on advertising revenue and you, you're talking about algorithms and, and machines that can create articles that are going to drive that sensationalist thing to, to boost revenue and, and, you know, add revenue for these companies. Do you think we ever see a time where we are united again? I, you know...
0: I sure hope so. Yeah. I sure hope so, because I believe that division is the greatest existential threat that humanity faces. It's, you know, global warming, uh, the, the, the uh, Democratic candidates were all on stage and they were talking about global warming is an existential threat. Global warming is an existential threat. Well, you know what? It probably is. It probably is. But it's not going to kill any of us for the next 20 years. Division division is what created the civil war division the civil war killed more americans than all other battles combined all other world wars combined and it wasn't about only about slavery it was about the difference between what rights we enjoy the federal government versus the state government does the state have the deci- have the right to decide that it wants slavery or does the federal government have the right to say no does a state to open for business or does the federal government have a right to say no these differences of opinion can also lead to a civil war okay especially in in a situation like a pandemic where you have millions of people out of work i mean we have 22 million people out of work we have 25 percent of the american public out of work this has never happened before except during the great depression and and so people do not starve in silence, and and especially Americans. Okay, we're not some third world country that you know uh, people are used to living in poverty, and the government can get away with whatever it wants to get away with. Americans are empowered, they're entitled, they're aware, uh, they're they've been told they've got rights.
1: The land and, of the free, the land of opportunity. <laughs>
0: and, yeah, and the home of the brave, and yeah. and you know they're they're not they're not going to just sit back. So. <laughs> We need to recognize that united we stand and divided we get torn apart, divided we fall. So, so we need to be united. And, and clever actors who would like to see nothing better than for America to fall, those actors will use social media to try to create division and to destabilize America. We saw this during the 2016 election. We saw Russia using Facebook to try to interfere with our elections. But this was just a small, this was a small incursion. What if it's a larger incursion? What if they're using these algorithms like Amazon talks? What if they have us tearing apart at the seams and destroying the fabric of the country because they've divided us, over social and political and economic issues, guns, global warming, uh, you know, uh, universal basis, basic income, economic inequality, you know, whatever the issue, we got huge issues that we're dealing with. In order to solve those issues, and they're all solvable, all of the problems that confront us are solvable and manageable. But we have to be united. We have to cherry pick the best ideas. This is why I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I would never join the Republican Party or the Democratic Party today. I don't want I don't want to have anything to do with either one of them. Okay. I want independent, critical thinkers to join together and to look at the Republican Party and say, you know what, what ideas do you have that are good ideas and look at the Democratic Party and say, what ideas do you have that are good ideas? And let's cherry pick the ideas from each of you and let's create a country that serves all 335 million of us, not that serves half of us, not that half of us are happy with, but that we're all happy with, right? That's what we need. It's such that's a great. What that's yeah, what I would see.
1: It's such a great message rather than the, for us to win. Somebody else has to, has to lose mentality. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. All engines running. Lift off. We have a lift off. Well, at this stage, let's let's get into what we call the win the day rocket round, where we go through ten questions for really, really quick uh, answers to get into. This is where we get to know the real you, George. Are you, are you ready? Uh-huh. <laughs> All I right. What, question number one: What quote? We not ins- have answers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question number one: What quote inspires you the most?
0: Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever hope to achieve greatly. Robert F. Kennedy.
1: Love it. All right. Uh, Morning coffee or evening wine?
0: Evening wine.
1: Uh, What's one bit of advice you would give your eighteen-year-old self? Take
0: care of your health.
1: Very important. Uh, What book do you gift the most? I guess that's Millennial Samurai.
0: Yeah. This. This. (laughs) uh, Look, I could tell you, I could list a number of other books, but there's no better book. There's no better book that I want you to read or that I think you need to read than this book. You go to millennialsamurai.com and you download it for free and you do it now.
1: We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you very much, George, for that very generous gift.
0: And if you have a young child, if you have a young child who's younger than 18 or younger than 16, um, they could be 8 to 10 to 12 to 14 years old, then go to amazon.com and get this book for them, Seize Your Destiny, A Roadmap to Success. This is a great book. Uh, primer for a young person, a very young person. Um, you know, someone, I mean, and anyone could get something out of this eight, eight to 80, but I wrote this specifically when my daughter was 16 years old and it's for that audience, primarily great book for them, but for anybody that's over 16 millennial samurai.
1: Love it. Uh, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower?
0: Wow. Vulnerability that I once hid within that became my superpower. Um, Yeah, I think, I think um, my openness to information and my open mind is not something that I always displayed or always showed. So for example, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a Republican, you know, Um, I wasn't talking like I'm talking today, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't saying uh, everything that really needs to be said. And so, uh, and I think that is my superpower today. I think that saying everything that needs to be said uh, is liberating. It's, it's just, it's right. um, And uh, it is my superpower today.
1: I love it because it helps encourage others to think for themselves too, which is really, yeah. really important. Yeah, uh, yeah. fantastic. Uh, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Failure
0: is the best teacher in the world, best teacher in life. Um, you know, you'll learn a lot of things uh, throughout your life, but uh, nothing, absolutely nothing, will teach you uh, as well as failure. Because you'll good- remember you'll remember those lessons. You'll never never forget them.
1: (laughs) If you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone, alive or dead, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. Any reason for Abraham Lincoln?
0: Yeah, because we'd be talking about division and unity.
1: Yeah, it'd be a good time for him to come back.
0: (laughs) I think that's that's the most uh, existential threat facing the world today. And uh, he's the guy who I'd want to talk to about it.
1: Uh, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business?
0: Well, right now it's probably my phone, you know, because uh, I've become um, more of an author and a speaker and a social media influencer today. And so uh, that, that whole um, engagement with social media uh, is something that I had never done before. It's all new to me. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I don't typically do it off my laptop. I do it off my phone and I have my phone with me everywhere. And, uh, you know, they say that you touch your face and you touch your phone both 2000 times a day. (laughs) Um, I definitely have a, a bit of a phone addiction, um, but it's, it's an essential tool for me today.
1: It's yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of sweet situation, isn't it, with phones? Yeah, it is. Especially when you have kids and things too. You realize that uh when you're in the middle of a moment, it's like your your instinct is not always to enjoy the moment, it's to reach for your phone and capture it. But capture yeah. it for what? This is yeah. the moment that should yeah. be enjoyed. Exactly. Exactly. Uh yeah. what's one I thing myself on, doing that? Yeah. yeah. Uh what's one thing on your bucket list? Ah, oh,
0: jeez. Um I want to see the Great Wall of China. Um, I, um, I've traveled all over the world, um, quite extensively, but there are still some places that I haven't been that I want to go. I want to, I want to go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Um, I want to go to some unusual places, um, where the power of nature, the enormity of nature and, and history, um, can have an impact on me. Um, I I read this great article about this guy who walked across the Sahara Desert, a portion of the desert, uh, like this massive sixteen mile uh stretch of nothing but desert. And uh um he walked through the whole thing. Um and it took him, you know, however many days or weeks uh to get through the whole thing. Um and he um he talks about you know, come, walking through the desert and coming upon a sand dune that was more than a hundred feet high. And, and he would have to climb up that sand dune. Now imagine you're walking on this 16 mile journey during through this you know, Sahara desert and, and you come upon this, you're looking up and it's like a huge wave and you've got to climb over it. You don't know what's on the other side. Might be another wave, just like the one you just got over right? And, and he said, uh, that he prayed and he, um, he said that he asked God to just let him live through this experience and that he would share with the world, the enormity of nature, the power of nature that he would, that he would talk about the power of nature and how, how infinitesimal we are in the face of nature. Um, So I'd like to be exposed to more of those types of experiences. I'd like to, um, do anything that, that, you know, essentially broadens my mind and broadens my experience. Um, I've always felt that way. Even as a young man, I, I wanted to have as many experiences as possible. I think that's very important. That's why I've traveled all over the world is because I've wanted to have new experiences. I haven't been to Australia and I I definitely want to go to Australia. I've heard wonderful, wonderful things about it.
1: Um, if you like nature and the outdoors, it's uh, it's great. We're a very young country, though. There was someone who moved to Australia from Europe, and she was really excited to learn more about our our culture. And it was like, well, we are a ve- you know we are a very very young country with buildings and things. So it's yeah, it's hard for someone from Europe, where civilizations are thousands of years old, to come to Australia and appreciate the you know, our architecture and things like that, but outdoors it, it, and nature and animals as a view, I feel like it, it can't be beat.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's a gorgeous city. And, um, and I, everybody that's been there has just raved about it. Do you have an audience in Australia?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot yeah. of Aussies, probably 50% of people listening will be in Australia.
0: Okay. Well, if anybody's out there in Australia and they need a speaker, I would love to come to Australia. So if somebody wants to send me a ticket to come out and speak to their group, if we still have groups, um, <laughs> I, I, w- I would come. I might not come right now because of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but when this is all over, um, if you want somebody to speak, I would love to come to Australia.
1: He's amazing on stage as well. So just give him a reason to, to get on that plane and, and come to Australia. <laughs>
0: yeah, reach out <laughs> to me on, yeah. on social media.
1: Awesome and last question. What's one thing you do to win the day?
0: One thing I do every day to win the, win the day. Yeah. I, I I roll over in the morning and I kiss my wife and uh, and that starts me off with a great day, and um, and I and I have a moment of gratitude where I think about what I have to be grateful for, and uh, she's certainly one of the things I have to be grateful for. So. Um, I just, you know, I try to begin my day with gratitude and with optimism. And fortunately I'm doing what I love. So I do, I wake up every morning. I can't wait to learn something new. I, you know, I can't wait to get uh, online and start reading Uh, whether I'm reading medium or I'm reading Quora, I'm reading Axios or I'm reading the New York times, whatever I'm happening to read. um, I love doing it. I love learning and um so, you know, gratitude and lifelong learning, I guess, would be uh, the things that are key.
1: That passion for what you're doing. Yeah, it's so important. And gratitude, I, every morning I, I take a photo of the five-minute journal that I use where you write down three things that you're grateful for. And yeah, because it's, I think it's important for people to see that we're not just talking about gratitude, that we're also, yeah. that we're also doing it. It's, it's a very powerful way, isn't it? Of just resetting and, and thinking about what's most important in your life. You know, one of the things that
0: I, that I learned, um, that I hadn't known my whole life, um, but that I learned over the last several years is, is how incredibly powerful gratitude is. It, it just changes, it changes the way you view the world. You know, if, if, if you, if you look at what you have and no matter what it is, no matter I mean, you see kids in, 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 Playing in the dirt in Africa or Egypt or wherever, and and they're poor and they uh, they they don't have any toys, you know, and uh, they're kicking around maybe a deflated soccer ball if they even have that. Maybe it's a can, but they're laughing and they're having fun, and 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 they're they're able to have a great life with nothing, you know. They're they're able to have moments. That are, that are great with nothing. And so, you know, we can all have those moments. Um, the world is still extraordinary. You know, your life is still extraordinary. Um, you know, you think about children, right? So interesting things about children. Number one, you look at a child and, you know, if you've, if you have a child of your own or you've been around children, um, you know what an exciting thing it is when they, experiencing, when they experience something for the first time, right? So you take them out in the rain, and they've never been in the rain. Or you take them out in, to the snow, and they've never seen the snow. Or they see a mirror as a baby for the first time. Um, and there's this amazement. There's this sense of delight. There's this glow and this smile in their faces. Um, well, you know, it's still raining, folks. This, 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 the snow is still falling, falling, and that mirror is still there for you to take a look in. And, and so these miracles, they're still there. It's just that you, your, your perception of them has changed. And you need to go back to that childhood perception where everything, you're grateful for everything because it's all new and it's all exciting. And, and so that's, that's something to think about. And then also think about how children learn children you know if you want to learn a, a foreign language they tell you learn it when you're a child because you will be much it'll be much easier for you you'll learn it much more quickly why is that why is it the child's minds are like sponges right because they're open they're open they don't know anything so it's all new so they're letting it all come in they're not screening it They're not rejecting it; they're just letting it all come in, you know. And and so we can learn from children,
1: you know. Yeah, having a one-year-old now, it's it's incredible. Literally, she's just she took her first steps about three weeks ago, and then now watching just the look on her face when she can put eight to ten steps together, or she just has she loves dancing and also has this roar like she's a lion cub. It's it is fascinating, (laughs) isn't it? Just going on this journey of of. Becoming intensely curious about the world again through the lens of, of a child with all the experiences that you mentioned.
0: Exactly. You'll get to go back on the playground. You haven't been on the playground for a long time. <laughs> That's right. know, when she goes on the playground at school and their first day of school, you're going to get to go on the playground and hang out on the playground again. Yeah. That's going to bring back some memories.
1: Absolutely. My yeah. wife always says I'm a big kid anyway, so uh, yeah. I don't think the transition will be too, uh, too harsh for me. <laughs> <It's>
0: wonderful. Greatest. <laughs> yeah.
1: Greatest- well, George, where can people go to learn more about you and keep in touch?
0: They can go to GeorgeJChanos.com and GeorgeJChanos on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, they can go to MillennialSamurai.com. Um, I'm all over social media. If if you could spell out my name, you know, GeorgeJChanos on uh, on your post, um, then they'll they'll be able to know how to spell it and, and connect with me. Um, I, I love to interact and communicate with followers, um, especially if they've read the book. Um, I'd like to know what you think. Um, I'd very much like to know what you think. Um, and if it's changing your life and it's having an impact, please let me know because that's what I'm doing this for. And that's what drives me. And, and, you know, I, I need inspiration too. We all do. And when I hear from you, and you tell me that the book is changing your life, um, it means a lot to me. Um, It really means a lot to me. And um, I'm going to have to write another one soon. So I need motivation. (laughs) And uh, and if I keep hearing from people, you know, that's the kind of motivation. I'll tell you, when I wrote this book, on the back, there's a a quote from a young man named Raphael Delgado. And it says, I grew up in a broken home, raised by a single mom who had trouble keeping the lights on. Your book spoke to me like the father I never had. Great insights. I couldn't agree more with you. Thank you for writing it. It's it's messages like that that I get in emails or that people post on my page that, that make me know that I'm on the right path. It's like if I were traveling down a path and there was a sign that says, you know, turn left or go this way, you know, these are my signs. These are the things that say to me, okay, you're doing what you need to do. You're making the most of your one and only life. You're on the right path. This is the path to keep walking down. And, and so your feedback means something to me. So
1: please share it with me. We'll include a link to all those channels in the, in the show notes as well. So everyone listening and watching, go and uh, connect with George. But thank you so much for, uh, for being here and sharing all your incredible wisdom.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope that we can change some lives. I mean, you're, you're helping to create awareness. You're doing, you're doing exactly what needs to be done. You know, you're helping people every day. So thank you for the stuff that you're doing and the messages that you're giving people and the way you're inspiring people and enriching them and speaking to them about the same issues that I'm speaking
1: to them about. Just letting them know that everything they have to succeed, as you said, is already, you know, they've already got it. And to be excited about, yeah. And no matter what is happening in the present, that you can always be excited and and optimistic about creating whatever future you desire. That's the end of our chat with George. And I hope you found it as powerful as I did. Fortune favours the brave and it's the perfect time to start upskilling so you can take advantage of all the opportunities at a time when most people are doing the opposite. Remember to connect with George via the links in the show notes and grab a free copy of his new book, Millennial Samurai. If you want to be the first to hear about interviews when they are released, hit subscribe, and if you enjoyed this conversation, hit the like button and share it with a friend or a loved one so they can benefit too. That's all for episode 27. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.